Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Last Musas podcast. My name is Adriana Hernandez Bergstrom, and I am the author illustrator of Abuelita and I Make Flan, coming from Charles Bridge in 2022. Today, I'm joined by Lakin Zaya Kemp, Monica Mancillas, Johnny Garzavilla, and Vanessa L. Torres. And today on this episode of Ask a Musa, we'll be talking about a mixed bag of subjects. All right, Lake and Thea, can you start us off by introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about your book? Yes, absolutely. Um, so as introduced, my name is Lake and Thea Kemp. I'm a young adult author living in Austin, Texas. My debut novel, Somewhere Between Bitter and Sweet, uh, comes out on April 6, 2021 from Little Brown Young Readers. And it's a young adult contemporary romance told in two voices. So it's dual point of view. And it's about the importance of food, family, first love, and finding where you belong. Excellent. Can Monica Mancias, you want to tell us a little bit about your book? My name is Monica Mancias. My debut book uh, is a picture book that comes out in 2022. It'll be released by Balzer and Bray, an imprint of HarperCollins. And it's about a little girl who um, goes to Ensenada to visit her family for the first time and finds herself trying to fit in in this new culture and uh, and you know is a little bit um, shy because she doesn't speak Spanish as well as she would like to and just about sort of the unconditional love of family and how that remains regardless of cultural differences. Johnny Garzavia, you want to tell us a little bit about your book? Of course. Um, so my young adult debut is titled 1500 Miles from the Sun. It's about Julian Luna, a Corpus Christi, Texas high school senior, who after getting just like exponentially drunk at a party accidentally comes out as gay on Twitter. And in the days and weeks and months that follow, Jules will find out all of the happiness and joy and love that can occur whenever we live um, out our truth, but also the fear and rejection and sadness that can also come whenever we, we live how, um, how we're meant to be. And that comes out June 8th, 2021. Excellent. Vanessa L. Torres, do you want to talk to us about yours? Sure. My debut comes out in spring 2022. It's a YA, yes, I'm going to say historical fiction because it takes place in the 1980s. And it's coming out through Penguin Random House. Now, I know that hurts, doesn't it? Historical fiction. And it's about a ballet dancer in Minneapolis who is battling family expectations to become a prima ballerina, but she really wants to dance for Prince, who just happens to be rehearsing for the movie Purple Rain right above her studio. And, and there's lots of kissing in it too, which is cool. Excellent. Okay, so let's, that, this takes us to our first question. Are there any tips for creating and maintaining creative habits during this pandemic? Any tips on how to break it down and create some creative habits that can be realistic and rewarding during this extra challenging time? All right, I'll like start off, Lycan. <laughs> okay, so I do have an answer to this question, but first I wanna say that I love Prince <laughs> and we have, we have like a <laughs> six foot painting that my partner's friend did of him that hangs in his office. Didn't nice. need that. It's huge, but it's just like something really funny. Oh, I think out. everybody needs that. <laughs> I know. Who doesn't need some prints in there? And it's all that. done in like metallic paint and it's kind of 3D. So like it's all textured. Oh, you um, must take a photo and send it to me. I need to see that. I keep meaning to post it online, but I keep forgetting. Um, but not epic. to take us off track. <laughs> um, so what are your tips? Does he distract you while you're trying to maintain your creative habits? Yeah. Is he, is he, is he a, a source of inspiration? So he's not in my office, but I feel like he would only enhance the vibe. <laughs> and that's kind of what my answer is about in terms of creating a, a creative space that kind of triggers to you, to your mind, to your body, that you're about to create something. So I know a lot of us have found ourselves working from home these days, but whether you're spending more time at home or not, it can just be really difficult to suddenly turn on your creativity after you've already been working on the computer all day, or maybe you've been helping your kids with their schoolwork, which is probably on the computer. When you're at home, you probably notice like the mess more often, you feel the urge to clean or just do other things that 
tend to pull your attention away from whatever you're working on. So something that I recommend is creating some kind of ritual that signals to your senses that it's time to create. And for me, I like to turn on the lamp behind my desk. So I don't know if you can see behind me, I have a really cheap Ikea lamp, but it casts this really warm glow over my workspace, which makes it seem like a really inviting and cozy place to be. And the low lighting, I think, also really helps me sort of ease into the work. It's not too harsh where I feel this sense of urgency to get started. And in fact, back before I had an office space of my own, I used to do all my writing on the couch and I have a lamp there also that when it's on, it casts that same warm glow over that corner of the couch. So even if you don't have a designated workspace, I think you can still create some artificial boundaries around that space using lighting or maybe a particular blanket or pillow. But basically this initial creative trigger needs to be something that you enjoy. So it could even be a cup of hot cocoa, like our fellow Musa Raquel Vasquez Gilliland. She told me that she starts her morning every morning with a cup of hot cocoa, which to me is genius because I'm not a coffee drinker, but I love sweets. So I have started having cocoa in the mornings and it's been really nice. Um, or you can turn on an oil diffuser that releases one of your favorite scents. Music and ambient noise can also serve as one of those creative triggers. And I'll actually link in the show notes to a YouTube channel that I listen to quite a bit, as well as a website where you can create your own mix of different ambient sounds. And then Headspace for anyone who didn't know also offers some ambient sounds to play in the background while you work. But the thing is writing involves such a significant amount of emotional labor and your mood has a huge impact on your creativity and therefore on your productivity as well. But creative triggers and building in some routines that can help to regulate your mood so that you're not having to fight this psychological battle every time you write, I think can help diminish those feelings of anxiousness that we sometimes get when we first, you know, return to the page because suddenly your mind and body are used to this task and have come to understand that even though writing can sometimes be scary, it won't actually kill you. <laughs> that sounds amazing. I have a weird question, actually, a follow-up question for you, Lakin. Do you have kids? I don't. Okay, just checking. Okay. <laughs> I was just I'm like, I'm like, when do you do all this stuff? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I realize that disqualifies me from giving certain types of advice. Um, I, have, I have, I have, yeah, I have one. I have some advice. Okay, but that one's ideal. That that sounds <laughs> ideal, like, and that sounds like ideal, perfect world advice. Sounds yes. amazing. <laughs> yes, but even if you don't have a home office, like I was saying, you can designate a space in your home somehow using lighting or other things. Um, and sometimes that helps, just knowing that I'm moving to the space, and when I sit in the space, that means I'm creating. All right, cool. Monica? Yeah, so um, I think that Lekan had some amazing advice during non-pandemic times if you're not a work-from-home mother um, like I am. I think that those are all great. I think that if you are a mother and you're dealing with distance learning at home and you've got, like so many people I know, and including myself, a new puppy in the house who wants to nip at your hands every time you're typing, you're dealing with, you know, noise from neighbors doing construction because now's the time that everybody's renovating. You don't, it's, it's a lot, it's been a lot harder during this pandemic, I think, to establish those kinds of creative routines that we used to have and rely on. And I don't think it's impossible, but um, it's very, very challenging to find that space. So for me, one of the first things I, I mean, one of the first things I'd recommend is, is, you know, to, to ease up on yourself and not be so hard and, and establish reasonable expectations of yourself. Um, you may not be able to hit the same word count as you would have in non-pandemic times. You may not, you, you may have a plan for the day and that plan goes awry and you have to sort of reset those expectations or just throw them out the door and be kind to yourself. As much as possible, this has also been a challenge, I think, um, employing self-care Make sure you get enough sleep if you can. Make sure that even on a non-writing day, if you can't write, it's okay, set it aside, pick up a book even for 10 minutes and read a book. 
if you can get outside and take a walk all of those things to sort of clear your mental energy and and get creativity going but honestly the biggest thing for me i think this comes even pre-pandemic times be becoming a parent and trying to juggle writing and working and being a parent you have to you have to be okay with writing with noise you have to be okay with writing with interruption and you know at the very beginning of this pandemic i think my creative energy was was blocked and it was really difficult and i had to just be okay with that for a minute but i am on deadline so i had to be able to push through that and that just meant getting up every day sitting in the same place or sitting wherever i could where there was the least amount of interruption and just writing in every moment and every space that i could find so you know i'm going to have a million interruptions I likened it on Twitter the other day to um, to trying to eat with somebody constantly taking the fork out of your mouth <laughs> because you just constantly have those interruptions of kids and puppies and housework and work and all of those things. So you really just have to be okay with snatching those creative moments whenever they come between whatever hours of day you're awake and and just be kind to yourself. This is one moment in time. It's going to pass. We will be beyond this and we'll be able to establish those creative routines again. But for now, do what you can and be kind to yourself. Yeah, I like that. Do what you can. <laughs> do what you can when you can. Johnny, what about you? Um, so I would first say like for me, the biggest benefit has been investing in headphones. I like in the middle of the pandemic decided to be better for my mental health to like move in with one of my friends and I hadn't had a roommate in like three years. And so it, it was, it's been a very different experience and like whenever I just kind of like went to kill them with my eyes while they're playing their video games and watching whatever animes there are like while I'm trying to write on the dining room table like that those earphones have just been able to allow me to just kind of like unplug and be able to like focus on what I'm doing um, especially because like our, our schedules kind of sort of clash um, in the way that like when we're productive um, so yeah so headphones for sure not really a creative tip, but I've kind of found a reliance on my writer friends, not just like talking about writer things and manuscripts. I mean, we're going to do that a lot already. Like we're, we're writers, so admittedly we do. But just to like decompress and make sure that writing whatever we're writing isn't all that's on our mind all the time, because that's just going to inevitably lead to burnout. And getting back into like a creative habit sort of thing, like I, I try not to see creativity as solely putting words on paper. Like it can be making Pinterest boards and Spotify playlists and just thinking about your characters. Like all of those things can all be ways of being productive. And so it's healthy just not to measure our productivity by how many words we put on a page in a certain day. Uh, and, and I think you all have both mentioned it, but just checking in with yourself, like mentally, how many spoons do you have today is always just a great way to kind of gauge where you are and how much production you can do that day. Excellent. I also have that advice for headphones. <laughs> what about you, Vanessa? Well, um, I'm one of those writers that even pre-pandemic, I've always kind of thrived in a little bit of chaos around me. And so I was that person who went to the super busy cafe and would just sit there among all the people. And, you know, I wrote the first draft of this entire book um, at a cafe. And sometimes I would have headphones, but I wouldn't even have them turned on. I would just be like eavesdropping on the people next to me and getting dialogue ideas and things like that, which I absolutely totally miss now. And that might stem from, you know, my actual other job is a firefighter paramedic. So like, I'm always, I guess, 25 years of it, I've been trained to be able to function with a little bit of chaos happening. And so when I had to transition to home, it wasn't that big of a step, but I did find that I had to make smaller goals to, for myself, not expect that I was gonna get like a whole chapter done maybe, um, because I do have a child at home um, doing remote learning. And for me, rituals are really big um, and they always have been. I'm a runner and I, I liken it to that where when I know I'm gonna go for a run, it's all about picking out the socks I'm gonna wear and getting my shoes on. And as I'm tying my shoes, I can feel my heart rate accelerating, just anticipating the run. And I absolutely love that feeling. And I 
do that, I duplicate that for my writing as well. I go get my tea or my coffee or whatever and set everything how I need it. And it gets me in that mindset of what's going to happen. Even if it's just a sentence or two, like something's going to happen. And um, I like to listen to music. I, I, it doesn't bother me at all to have like music just blasting while I'm writing. I actually like that. Um, sometimes I'll even have YouTube on on a screen behind my you know word document and because i wrote a lot about ballet and dance i'll have like the dutch national ballet company class going because you can actually watch it live and sometimes i'll actually take the class which kills me because i can't move the next day but you know i like listening to the ballet class while i'm writing because it makes me really feel like i'm there and um so just things like that that's great that's really cool i can imagine that being an immersive like feeling like you're immersed in the topic of your book. Um, so for me, for my own creative practices, I've been an artist and illustrator for like 15 years. <laughs> um, my top, my top recommendation is to get noise canceling headphones. <laughs> I, I was, I was the annoying person in a, an art studio who was like, always like chatting up my neighbor. And then now as a mom, I have my own annoying roommate, like my child, whom I love very much, but he's very, um, he's an only child. And so my partner and I are his like playmates slash everything. Anyway, it's been incredibly difficult doing e-learning and having to adapt my previous routines and still support um, him. And so basically I would say, besides the headphones, like creating like healthy boundaries with the people you're sharing quarantine with. And I mean that um, in the nicest way possible. I love my kid, but I have to have my time to just let my brain go. Otherwise I cannot do my job. And that doesn't, for me, it means both illustrating and writing. So I need like literally to have my hand <laughs> drawing the thing or it will not get drawn. <laughs> Um, with writing, I actually found it a little bit easier because at least you can use your mobile phone and like talk into it or type if you happen to be in the same room as your child who is having an outage of Zoom or internet or whatever. So yeah, fulfilling the needs of my family has been like an ongoing conversation between me and my partner, trying to just tag team. And I know there's single moms and single dads out there who are raising kids during this pandemic and still writing, so it can be done. But if you have the opportunity to have other family members, like if you live in a multi-generational house, like that is something to be cherished. If you have your parents with you or you have other um, family members that can, and you guys can really share the time, that that's huge. So I would say, yeah, making notes in your phone for illustrators, keeping a tiny notebook. I love, I'm a big fan of the tiny notebooks. <laughs> so um, I think it's like Leuchtturm, like, they, they make these tiny, adorable little notebooks, uh, probably the size of a postcard, so four, four by six inches, keeping it on you, writing in your sketches, writing in it or sketching, and uh, yeah, making sure you and your partner or you and whoever you're sharing your life with both have time for your pursuits. Balancing that, I think, is like the biggest thing. And also, as it was said before, like lower your expectations of what you can get done in 24 hours. I think one of the biggest ones, like your own mental hurdle is lower, lower your expectations. <laughs> We're in a pandemic. It's not, this is not ideal circumstances by any means. So take it easy on yourself and yeah, just lower that bar, hon, you'll be okay. Okay, so that leads me to the second question. All right, it's kind of a, diff this is a difficult topic. Any ideas for ways that white or white passing Latinx people can leverage our privilege and support underrepresented minorities within our communities, such as indigenous Afro-Latinx and Asian Latinx creators? Uh, let's start with you, Lakin. So I know that talking about money tends to make a lot of people uncomfortable, but it's really difficult to have conversations around equity in publishing and supporting marginalized creators without discussing it. So first and foremost, if you're an author, if you're a white author and you want to support by, by POC creators, I would say do not write a point of view character who is by POC. By POC characters and other marginalized characters, 
absolutely deserve to be in your books and your cast of characters as a whole should reflect the true diversity of the world that we live in. But there's a financial component to this when you're writing from an identity that you don't share when you're the person in the position of privilege and you're writing about a community that is marginalized, I feel like you're, you're literally taking someone else's seat at the table just because of the way publishing is structured and the way that the industry industry works currently. Um, and when you're taking up someone's seat at the table, you're also taking money out of their pockets. So what you should maybe do instead is commit to buying own voices stories written by marginalized creators give these books as gifts request them from your local library donate copies to a school or other organization get a group of your friends together and fundraise to buy class sets of books for teachers host a book club and introduce your friends and family to some marginalized authors they may have never heard of and then go the extra step of telling them why it matters Show them the statistics on publishing being over 70% white and how there are more books for kids about animals than featuring by POC characters. And then if you're reviewing these books, so if you're in the position of just being a reader, I would say to always round up your ratings. So for example, if you'd give a book three and a half stars, you can totally specify that in your review, but then award them four stars on Goodreads or Amazon. And this system isn't perfect, but it does help to balance out some of the racist or biased reviews that the book will inevitably get simply for being written by a marginalized author. So I basically use whatever time and resources that you have to spotlight authors in these books in a way that is actually meaningful and doesn't just address the problem on a surface level. Instead, when you're introducing people to these books, make sure they know why representation matters, and how, as a consumer of books, they can actually have an impact on what publishers choose to invest in and what kinds of books actually make it into the hands of kids. Excellent advice. Like, um, um, Monica, do you have any advice? Yeah, um, so I think this, as you said, this is, it's a, it's a challenging um, topic to address and there's so many different different ways that we can address this and should be addressing this as allies. For me, I, I completely agree with everything Lekan said about trying to make space for marginalized creators. And definitely um, we have to be careful not to co-opt their stories, right? But I think I think we also, for, for me, my, my main objective as an author is to educate and empower the younger generation, you know, my readers. One of my missions in, in my debut and also in the book that I'm currently working on is to highlight the fact that the Latinx community is incredibly diverse. We are not just one thing. We are, you know, I think in the media, we're often represented in one light. There's one kind of Latinx person. We are white, we are black, we are Asian, we are transgender, we are Jewish we are poor, we are middle class, we are wealthy, we are inventors, we are astronauts, we are dancers, we are writers, we are innovators. Um, and I think that marginalized communities are often underrepresented in though in, in when we talk, we talk a lot about struggles, not enough, but we do talk about the struggles of those underrepresented and marginalized voices, but we don't often enough talk about their achievements and their accomplishments and, and, and there really are a myriad uh, amazing accomplishments within all of these different um, marginalized communities. So I see it as my responsibility to make space for those voices and to amplify those voices when I can and to be an ally as much as I can in, in that regard. Thank you, Monica. Johnny? Yeah, so um, real talk, like I think a good place to start is to say that it's perfectly okay to be white slash white passing and also Latina, and it's okay to recognize that you are. And at the same time, it's important for white Latinas to also recognize that they more easily are handed a speaker up to publishing's ears and a mic in their hand. And 99 out of 100 times, their go-to reaction 
with those tools is to speak for Afro-Latinas, for us brown or indigenous Latinas, et cetera. And they, they can often be very well-meaning with these actions, but it's still not thinking anything of being the ones in control of the movement, being the face of Latinas in publishing, being the person who holds it down for us. And we need them to see the ways that colorism and racism play a part to their benefit in publishing and how they could be residing in that comfort, whether or not they think that they are. Uh, I, I think about like just how long 2020 has been and the fact that American Dirt happened this year. And I think about this NPR, I think it was, an interview on NPR um, with Sandra Cisneros, who talked about American Dirt and how she was very open about how it was written for white people and how okay she was with that. Black and brown and otherwise melanated Latinas are often not given the opportunities to write our stories and even more so to read stories by us and for us. But then we have to watch as white people, Latinas or not, make bank on our lives because like a white Latina author photo isn't as divisive or as threatening and an Anglo sounding name is just more marketable. You know, at, at the end of the day, like joke or not, the measurement for what publishing sees as their ability to capitalize on us is whether their audience feels like they could invite us to brunch. And like, that's, that's that on that. Dang. <laughs> well said, Johnny. I had some thoughts. <laughs> I, I hear them. I hear them. I mean, thank you for saying it like, like it is. I, I think people need to hear that. I, I think it's hard to, it's hard to recognize your privilege when you have it within a community that doesn't always have privilege within the wider community in which we exist. And I yeah, don't exactly. think, yeah, I think that's a really, it just needs to be said. And hopefully one day publishing will hear it, I guess. <laughs> Crossing our fingers. Crossing fingers. Uh, thanks so much, Johnny. Vanessa, what are your thoughts? Wow, I got to follow that up. That was awesome. <laughs> no pressure. No pressure. Yeah. For me, um, I am very white passing. I've always known that. Um, I think it starts with acknowledging my privilege, which is something that I had to learn. And looking back on my life, I realized that I was, I didn't know what that was really, because my father is not white passing. And I was witness to a lot of discrimination on his part, I mean, just stuff that happened to him that was terrible and I didn't really understand why as a child and then as I grew older, I did and it was very confusing and, and embarrassing and I mean, all those uncomfortable feelings. So now as an adult and as a writer in this community, I think I'm still learning how to help and embrace even who I am and where I fit. And I, I'm starting with uh, joining Las Musas. I mean, it's been wonderful. I mean, it's really taught me a lot just in a short amount of time. I think that organizations like Las Musas are so important and it, it's sort of giving me a puzzle to fit into a little bit because I see people like me and people not like me and we're all in this together. And it's just been really wonderful. And I'm still learning, like I said before. I guess my advice would be to follow groups like Las Musas. Um, I'm in a Slack group for 22 debuts and there's a channel for debuts of color and that's been really awesome too. All the conversations that happen on that channel, wonderful conversations. So I guess that would be my advice is to seek out organizations that actually highlight everyone. Yes, everybody's um, in a different place. I think in terms of acknowledging where they are, like where they fit into whiteness. I'm very white passing as well, but I'm the only one. I was the only one in my family who was white passing. So in road trips, I was the one that got out of the car and got things from grocery stores or, you know, bodegas, not bodegas, what do they call them? Rest stops, whatever those places were. It was me who always got out. So I knew very young that I was different because I had blue eyes. In any case, I've always lived on that fence, the fence between on the in-between, right? The in-between cultures, in-between colorism, you know, on that, on that spectrum, I was always on the white side, but I knew, I knew what it was like when you were not from a very young age. And so I think one of the ways that I 
have found to leverage my privilege is to create communities that are safe spaces for people of all skin tones, of all origins to be able to ask for help. And that's one of the things we did on Facebook. A friend of mine and I, we created a Facebook group for uh, called Kidlit Latinx a couple of years ago where we, we saw the conversations happening in Kidlit 411 and we saw that there was a big gap between non-Latino folks talking about our stories versus us talking about our own stories. And then within that, Afro-Latine and Asian-Latine creators even having less of an amplified platform in that particular forum. So, so one of my ways to um, help leverage my privilege is, yeah, creating a community, um, reaching out and making sure that I was keeping the door open to anybody who, like, I think people see me as kind of a safe person on social media to approach. And I've, um, I've kept my door open to help anybody who did need help, pointing them in the right direction. I've mentored a couple of people as an illustrator. And so if your own creative community, if you're seeing that your creative community is a little bit not as diverse as it could be, consider your creative, your critique groups, your writing circles, your art studio, consider opening your social cir circle or your social spaces to people different from you. And I mean that in an active way, not just like, hey, my door is open, like really amplify people's voices, retweet their tweets, follow through, hey, what's going on, you need any, do, do you want me to retweet this or did you need me to share this on my blog? Like if you have a platform, if you have a bunch of followers, like talk the talk and walk the walk, you know? Um, the other thing is, yeah, recognizing and uh, personally dismantling your own biases. I am by no means perfect. I was, even though I was the whitest in my family, guess what? My father, my biological dad and my biological grandfather were racist, super racist. So recognizing your own biases that you may or may not have had an a conscious choice about and uh, dismantling them, like actively working on your own issues and um, recognizing and actively working against colorism within our own families and wider community. I think one of the most uncomfortable conversations I regularly have with one of my uncles is about this, is about colorism and the complete denial that it exists in Cuba, which, you know, give me a break. <laughs> They had like a, a, a caste system in their country. Like, give me, no. Anyway, um, I, one thing that I did want to tackle that's different for an illustrator than a writer, I would say, is that as writers, you say you said like maybe don't write a, the point of view character in a, a race different from your own because you're taking the space out. But as an illustrator, I actually think it's the opposite. I think you should include as many diverse characters of varying skin tone, of varying uh, looks. And I mean that in the weight sense, as well as a skin color. I think there's a real lack of diversity in body sizes and in facial features in illustration. And so we are absolutely in the minority in, in Asian looking characters and black or dark brown skin, all ranges of skin tone, not white, <laughs> are in the minority of the children that are represented in children's books. So as an illustrator, I think it's important for kids to see themselves as much as possible. So keep it diverse in illustration. That's, that's what I've got. All right, question number three. This is an interesting one. When evaluating agents, what do you, rec rec what do you recommend looking for in addition to sales numbers? So what are the, and this is in air quotes, soft skills we should focus on? For example, the reputation, communication styles, editing style, et cetera. How do you find an agent that meets your needs in terms of lifestyle and emotional support? Lakin, we'll start with you. So we recently recorded two episodes of Debut Diaries for the Las Musas podcast, one focused on middle grade and young adult authors, and the other focused on picture book authors, and those first two episodes were focused totally on agents. So we discussed what our querying process was like, how we evaluated agents, what we like about our agents' communication style, and so much more. So please check out those episodes if you haven't already. They're full of so much great information and advice. But just to briefly add to what's already um, been said in those episodes, I really like the last part of this question that asks about emotional support and compatibility. Selling a book is 
so much different than selling any other type of product. We are very emotionally invested in our work and it's difficult not to take rejections personally and the level of criticism that we open ourselves up to by putting a book out in the world. It just requires a level of vulnerability that people in other professions just don't have to deal with. So you do need a business partner who cares about your emotional well-being. And that might start with respecting your communication style. So for example, if phone calls give you terrible anxiety, they probably shouldn't insist on phone calls and they should be willing to communicate with you via email as well. And that's just one example of your agent being supportive of you setting boundaries. But there are also lots of other times when you may want to get really clear about what you're willing to subject yourself to and what you're not. So for example, when I went out on submission with my debut novel, I chose not to see any rejections or feedback. I only wanted to know if an editor was interested and if the book was moving on to the next stage of the acquisitions process. And then my agent provided like a weekly roundup of who had dropped out and who was still reading and who wanted to schedule a phone call. And I think this strategy really safeguarded my mental health during what could have been an emotionally intense and anxiety inducing process, especially if some or a majority of that feedback may have contained some implicit bias or microaggressions. But again, the agent has to be okay with you setting boundaries. And not only is a good agent okay with you setting those boundaries, I think they also encourage you to and might even collaborate with you on how best to proceed with every interaction, every decision. And this is especially important for marginalized authors. You need an agent that understands that the toll on your mental health of being in this business is greater than that of an author who isn't marginalized. And that agent needs to be willing to go to bat for you and to almost be like your shield against those microaggressions as much as possible, whether that's during the submission process or the revision process with an editor or even during the marketing and publicity phase. Microaggressions and bias and racism can pop up at any time throughout your publication journey, so it's important to have an agent who wants to protect you from those things as much as possible. So if you're looking at an agent's client list and they have several authors from marginalized backgrounds and seem to have represented those authors for a significant amount of time, then that's probably a good sign that they're not just a good ally, but an effective ally. And conversely, if you notice that they don't have any clients from marginalized backgrounds or their clients seem to be extremely homogeneous in terms of race or gender or anything of that sort, then you can probably discern that allyship and advocating on behalf of marginalized creators is not a huge priority for them. Those are excellent points to keep in, in mind when you're searching for agencies and agents alike. Monica? Yeah, I think, um, you know, definitely begin with the basics, taking a look at their list and seeing who they represent. If you can and you feel comfortable, depending, you know, if you've been offered representation, then definitely, you know, take some time, a week or two, to reach out to people on, the, on their list and, and, and just find out about their experiences. Um, with the agent. And for me, communication, not just, you know, how they prefer to communicate, whether it's by email or phone or text, but how quickly they respond is really important to me because I'm a naturally impatient person. And as we all know, publishing is extremely slow. And so that can be really maddening. So for me, I feel really lucky to have an agent who responds very promptly. Even the, even the, the process of signing with her happened extremely quickly. Um, so that can be very alleviating <laughs> if you're an anxious writer waiting to hear news on submissions. And so communication style, I think, should should match your own. And one thing that I didn't do that, that I, I would recommend people do um, is to be bold enough to ask the question, why do you want to represent me? You know, because because now it's it's you know a couple of years later, and I and I still wish I had asked that question. What is it that you see in my work? Why is it you know what what is your vision for my career? Are you just interested in this one book? Are you in, just interested in in me as a Latinx creator, or do you have a larger vision? Are you flexible with with me writing in other genres and for other age groups? 
you know, what is your longer term vision and what is it that, that, that um, interests you in, in working with me? So just being very, you know, once you are on a, on a phone call with an agent, I think not being afraid to ask those kinds of frank questions, I think is really important. Um, I do have a question for you all as writers. When they asked about, in the, in the question itself, it asked about sales numbers. How would you even find that out? I guess you would ask the agent themselves about their sales numbers. Sorry, Publishers Marketplace. Publishers, Publishers Marketplace is a really good place to find out all so of Publishers that. Publishers Marketplace, okay. All right. Yeah, and you can join. I mean, they if you pay the fee, which isn't very much a month, um, I think it's like $28 a month or something like that, then you get all of the features where you can really go into all the details, like how many six-figure deals they've had in the last year. Um, you know, they really break it down by the numbers. So that's so, a question you could actually answer for yourself before even getting yeah. back to that agent. That's interesting. Okay, yeah. that's fascinating. All right, cool. Johnny? Yeah, uh, for me, editing style and like what their idea of what my manuscript would look like as a submission-ready book was something that I took into consideration. It was kind of like the biggest the biggest difference in, in the two offers that I had. One was kind of just like seeing in terms of numbers, let's cut this many words down to make this book ready because that's kind of the ideal number for young adult novels. Whereas the other author was like, didn't mention cutting words at all, but was just very much like specific notes. Let's get deeper with this relationship. Let's get more on this. Let's talk about this more. Let's bring this character up. Let's talk about them more. And so I got the sense that that latter one was really getting what I was trying to do with my book and was trying to better it in the way that they knew how and was really seeing like the soul of my book and trying to uplift that. And so I saw that as a huge deciding factor. And like Monica said, um, just reaching out to other clients of those agents is a huge thing too. Both of the agents that offered me representation were queer, so it really wasn't like a thing between that. But I did, re I did wanna reach out specifically to like BIPOC clients to see how their working relationship with those agents were because they were both white and just like the, the, the real talk of that, like how, how is that situation going? Um, because like I think was mentioned both times, like as BIPOC people, sometimes it can be a little different navigating that kind of world. It's, it's just a, a really difficult to, to try to make this huge decision in a time span of maybe like 10 to 14 days. Like we're really trying to figure that out and so I also really just want to like push, if you have to get them on the phone again, clarify things, like tell them, text, email them, let them know I need another phone call, I need to have more questions, I, like, I, I need some clarification. That's totally something that you can and should do if you need it, especially if you're juggling between multiple offers, or even if you're not and you just are juggling between a yes and a no, like that's still just as important to make sure that you have as much information that you can before making this huge decision, um, yeah. Agreed. I think that's really important too. If you are a multifaceted writer, like consider that the person who's going to represent you is comfortable and also able to champion you mm -hmm. the way you are. Definitely. Um, right. <laughs> Vanessa, what are your thoughts? For me, it was really important to know the agency as a whole too. I didn't just like throw out a bunch of queries just to anyone. I really did my research and looked at the agencies as a whole, how they operated. I really wanted an agency that was collaborative. I didn't want an agency that had just an agent here, there, here, there, nobody knew each other. Um, and I'm with a bent agency and they're very collaborative. So like my cover art just came down the pipe and it goes out to everyone in the agency and they all give their feedback. And then we all collaborate our response and then it goes out from there. And that's really what I wanted and so I, I sought that out and I also had the privilege of um, knowing a couple of people who were repped by the agent who I ended up signing with and um, so that was easy to kind of I already knew how she operated which was great which I think is really important because it's hard to understand how they are emotionally like are they a hand holder or are they just like black and white until you actually get that wonderful email that says I want a phone call and then you get on the phone and you get to you know actually talk with them. I had three offers come down the pipe when I actually, when it came down to it. And that was like very valuable for me to actually have all my questions and everything and sit there and talk to each agent. And they were all wonderful. But um, in the end, the one that I knew 
I mean, I was just so comfortable with her. It didn't, I wasn't stressed out talking to her on the phone. I can't even really explain what it is. It's just like a click, like an energy. Plus she did have good sales. So I was like, you know, this is a business at the end of the day. And I do want to also, you know, I want people to read my books. So, um, so I looked at all those things together, read their bios, um, following the hashtag manuscript wish list is I think really a cool way to understand what agents are looking for currently um, because they post their wish lists quite often on Twitter. So that's actually a, a good way to follow, like if you want to follow a particular agent or something like that. But yeah. Thank you, Vanessa. I wanted to add something. So as an illustrator, it's interesting. So for those people listening who may not be writers only, if you're an illustrator and you're on Instagram, I highly encourage you to sign up for Twitter because that's where the editors and agents are. And so following up from what Vanessa said, the hashtag that you're looking for is either manuscript wish list or hashtag MS, uh, WL. WL, yeah. <laughs> manuscript MSWL. That's the hashtag you're looking for. Um, I think one of the most interesting things has been for me is looking at Twitter instead of like the mean girls playground, which is how I used to consider it, uh, is now seeing the, the warm community that is the writer's community, the kidlit community on Twitter. That it was very surprising to me. And I, I'm glad that I'm, I'm able to see it now because before I would, I would avoid it like the plague. So in terms of finding an agent and I want to echo what everybody else said. The first thing I wrote down for my notes for this conversation was communication style matches your own. <laughs> so that is absolutely key. If you are a person who loves notes on your PDFs, if you like the red marker, if you like, you know, whatever it may be, your favorite way to edit your stuff or, or receive feedback, that has to be in sync with whoever your agent is or not. Some people actually do not like having an agent and use uh, specific publishing attorneys for each contract. Like that's legit too. You don't have to have an agent. I would say, um, the questions you should ask yourself are how do you like to receive your edits? Is this agent on the same page as you as a person as in your, with your values? Because I saw we, this year really, really shone the light on certain agencies that did not walk the walk that they were one thing to you to the outward facing world and another thing when they weren't. How involved do you want to be with your marketing? As an illustrator, this is something that is a little bit more common. Like you see agencies sending out postcards or not, or sending out newsletters. Like how involved are you and how involved is your agency in that kind of thing? My agency is not actually into marketing, but they take a different percentage. They take less of a percentage of, of um, my sales and they do less marketing. I do more of my own marketing. And uh, my, my grandma had a great saying in Spanish that said, mejor estar solo que mal acompañado. It's better to be alone or better to go solo than to have a bad partner. You want an agent that's going to be your champion. And if they are not that, then it's not really worth your time, honestly, to find out what happens in the wrong way. Uh, the other thing that I would encourage anybody who is signing on is figuring out how you break up. Like what happens if you need to end your relationship? This has not happened to me personally. I love my agent, but this is something that happened to a friend of mine. And I learned, like I kept my eyes open. Make sure your contract is quite clear on how the chips fall when, I know I'm using like all these ridiculous metaphors, on how things break up, break up. like when you, when you ending your contract with your agent, what happens? If you have a manuscript on hold, if you have a manuscript on, in, um, in the pipeline, it querying, published, not published, the rights after that, like all of that, you should know. Oh yeah, that's all I got on this. <laughs> and actually this does lead into our last question and it's about rejection. <laughs> How do you interpret a personalized rejection from an agent? How should you use this agent feedback and what should your next steps be? Lakin? So I didn't actually spend a ton of time in the query trenches. I didn't really hit this milestone and I call it a milestone because even though it doesn't necessarily feel like progress, once you start getting personalized rejections, it is a big deal. 
And I think it means that you wrote something that is just on the cusp of being ready and that it's just so close. Um, and so close, in fact, that an agent not only took the time to read it, but they also took time out of their really busy day to offer you feedback. And so if you're starting to get personalized rejections, I would just say, you know, what should your next step be to celebrate? It means you're getting closer and that you're no longer the writer that you were at the beginning of your journey. It means that you've grown and it may have been at a snail's pace, but the point is that you are actually inching closer to your dream. Exactly. I say like, be your own cheerleader. <laughs> um, Monica, what are your thoughts on this question? Yeah, my experience was actually similar. I was very fortunate. I, I think I queried for two weeks before, um, before I signed with my agent. And that was thanks to DV Pitt. I participated in DV Pitt and, and that's how I found her. So yes, for DV Pitt, amazing. I recommend to everyone to participate. Um, so I wasn't expecting that. I thought I was going to be in the query trenches for a lot longer. And I actually started a binder in preparation to, for all of those rejections. And I planned on celebrating every single one, whether personalized or not, because it is one step closer to your goal. Um, and I, you know, I did, I did put a few things in there when we, when, when manuscripts went out on sub and I got a really nice personal, you know, a nice rejection from an editor, I would put it in there. Um, so I think any way that you can, that you can find to celebrate those. But one thing, even though I didn't spend a lot of time in the query trenches, um, I previous, prior to this, I, I spent many years um, in the recording industry. And so what I, what I did take into this, um, this new career from my old career was to be very careful about not chasing everyone's rejection. So in other words, it's a very, art is very subjective. Writing is very subjective. So I think when you get personalized rejection letters, you should take a look at them, take from them anything that you agree with, that you think you can use for, you know, to improve your work. Um, and then, you know, potentially depending on the letter, if they're inviting you to, to submit again to them, then absolutely. If you feel like it's a fit and, and you respect what they've told you about your work, then definitely pursue that. But don't chase, you know, I did that as a recording artist. Anytime somebody gave me a personal personalized rejection, it was, you know, uh, at 23, I was too old. Well, there was nothing I could do about that. But, you know, um, one person might say that my music was too rock. One person might say it was too, uh, too jazzy, one person, you know, and I, and I tried to chase that. I tried to be what everybody wanted me to be. And at the end I burned out. I didn't recognize my music anymore. And that wasn't why I initially got into the field. I wanted to be an artist. So I, I, I've taken that with me into being a writer that I want to stay true to my own vision and to my own passion. And so you have to be really careful with those rejections to just take from it what resonates with you and not try to be something for a particular person. You're looking for the person that fits you. You're looking for your audience. Well said. That happens to artists all the time. Like illustrators, that happens to us as well. That's so interesting that you mentioned that. I called it the chameleon, like trying to be a chameleon for other people. Johnny, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so I spent about four months querying and like 99% of the agents that I queried were because of Twitter pitch events like DV Pit and Pitmat. I did both of those. And I think probably because of those events, at least I, I kind of blame it on those events. I had like, I think a higher interest in my book. And so I had a pretty significant percentage of full requests comparatively, I, especially to like uh, my friends. I, I found out that I, it was pretty cool. And so I got a lot of those personal rejections I think most most of them were personal rejections. Like with that, I would say from my own experience, your next step should be nothing. Like I, I say this as someone who after getting even a minimally good idea from an agent would be like, oh my God, let me go rewrite this whole thing right now real quick. And that's just not advisable. Like even though the rejection might be personal, I'm gonna bet that the words, it was great, but just not for me, or I wanted to love it, but didn't grab me in the way I was hoping it would, or something to the like something to that effect are gonna be in there too. And the best thing you can do is just remember that there is someone who will say this book is very much for me. 
especially as BIPOC writers, we have to balance that feedback that we get and, and determine whether it's actually constructive feedback or whether it's just feedback that's trying to mold us into some cookie cutter white typical book. And so if you keep changing things based on what every agent who says no tells you is gonna turn into a, a hot mess. So like keep these things in mind, maybe write them down somewhere because they could be useful later down the road. And maybe if like a revise and resubmit opportunity comes around, you can take all those things into consideration then. But if you are confident in that manuscript before you sent it to them, don't let what they tell you break that into pieces. Excellent. Well, I have a question for you, Johnny. If you got the same, so here's one thing that does happen to some of my friends. If they get the same advice from three different agents, specifically about a certain element of their manuscript, mm -hmm. I think it's a little different. Like if there's, a, <laughs> if there's something foundational not working. <laughs> I like, if it's a huge thing, I uh, would maybe, you have to consider like, are you querying right now? Like who, how, many, how many agents have your manuscript in your hand? And would it really benefit you at all to change it while they're True. reading it? Especially if they got fulls, like if you got two or three agents with full manuscripts, there's not a lot of benefit to changing your manuscript right True. now True. because they could have a yes for you and they could have a totally different idea of how to shape your manuscript. So even then I would still say no. If you get a lot of them and you kind of just want to take a break from querying and reevaluate, then sure, yeah, definitely. But wait, be patient. Yeah, if you're continuing, like I, I got a lot of the same, the same stuff in my rejections, like whether it was voice or whether it was just like, I, I honestly did not know how to write a book. And so the structure of my book was very different from like your average book. And so I, I got a lot of that, just like the structure of it and like what they thought of, of revisions would look like. And so, yeah, even then I would say, again, if you get that revise and resubmit, like that's a good chance to do it. If not, just keep on going until you feel like you can take a break and then reevaluate at that point. Excellent. Thanks, Johnny. Vanessa? Wow, you guys are all so lucky. You weren't in the query trenches for very long. I'm so jealous. Um, yeah, my first book that I queried was a few years ago and I, I queried that one around with some big changes for about a year, I'd say. And I had a handful of full requests and won a couple of literary competitions with it and still um, nobody signed me and I was getting all that, you know, that, that feedback that you get like, well, it kind of slowed for me in the middle or, you know, that kind of thing. And I remember sitting at PNWA, Pacific Northwest Writers Association, their literary conference. And I remember listening to the speaker and she was saying, so, most people, they write a book and it's not the book. Like it's not the book that gets them signed. So don't be shocked if this book that you are querying right now isn't your book. Like it might be your practice book. It's how you're learning. And I remember thinking to myself, no, it's not going to happen to me. <laughs> like I'm going to sell this book. I mean, this is going to get me an agent. And um, I eventually had to just let that book go because I was just spinning my wheels and it was really unhealthy for me. And I had this other book in my head, The Turning Point, and I started writing that book. And all those agents who gave me the personalized rejections before invited me to, you know, submit to them again if I ever had something else. And I kept them, you know, in a notebook and um, kept my eye on them and um, submitted to them when I was ready with this book and, and then some, I mean, by then I had a bigger list, just put it out there and it ended up with way more than a handful of um, full requests, which was really cool. And I will say that I don't take rejection well. I'm one of those people that will just dwell on it forever and have a glass of wine and maybe two and still dwell on it. So I'm taking all your advice that you just said before me, because even now it's hard. And I remember when I, was getting my offers for representation. And you know, you play that game when that happens, when you have foals out there where it's like this race against time where you have to contact them all and say, okay, well, I need, I need you to read it within this amount of time and get back to me with your answer. And when I started getting, you know, I'm gonna step aside, you know, blah, blah, blah. It still felt like a rejection, even though I had offers on the table. I was like, well, why don't you want it? <laughs> why doesn't everybody want it? <laughs> and that's just me. And I'm, again, I'm learning how to kind of get past that and focus on, 
on the good parts, but it's hard because it's just something that's ingrained in my personality. So good luck. (laughs) (laughs) Good luck. I came from a commercial art background. So I would go to trade shows with like 150 pieces of art and sell maybe three. So the level of rejections that I have received in my life have been more than probably the average bear. I've received a lot of rejections. In fact, it had, <laughs> I mean, it, people like to say like, oh, it doesn't wear on you or whatever. Like it kind of does. Like sometimes it's like, dang, man, I love that piece. But what it did teach me was that it's not about you. Like the reason why half the time, the reason why your stuff is being rejected is not even because of the work. Sometimes it's because they have somebody else that they, they have a sort similar story. Um, they just sold a book that was similar content. They had, um, they didn't have a space in their roster for an artist, uh, an author, illustrator, or, you know, whatever. There's like a bajillion reasons why people say no. And there are only a few reasons why they say yes. And so I keep that in my mind. Um, And when you get a personalized rejection, that agent or that editor took the time to write to you. That is special to me. And even when I was in design and in commercial art, when you got a personalized rejection or or asking for more art or asking for more stories, that is so encouraging. That's like, hey, you, I see your name now. I see you among the thousands or several hundred, depending on what industry you're in, of entries or, or, or emails that they got. They wrote to you. Like, take that as a gold star, you know, for real. Like, man, this, this can be a long slog. So I would take those wins regardless of how small they are um put them in your back pocket man because there's some days where just things suck (laughs) things are not great so take those small wins and and keep them uh the other thing i wanted to say was as an illustrator feedback about your style can be very confusing and like monica was saying about being a recording artist it's very similar to being an illustrator if you have a vision for your work and you know it's not quite there yet, and you get a personalized rejection that has style notes from an agent or an editor, I would take those with a grain of salt. Is it telling you that you're not ready yet, that the content you're creating is not professional enough? Or is it saying that your content is professional, but not right for them or right for that story? Like those are two separate things. And I would, it's so difficult to tell because you're so close to your own work that this is where I highly recommend that you have some kind of critique group or some kind of outside factor of people, neutral eyes, to help you sort some of this stuff out. And critique groups are not always right, by the way, but it does help to have, right? (laughs) They're not always right, but it helps to have that kind of discerning eye. So yeah, I use feedback like this to make my portfolio work in manuscripts that were relevant to the market true to my own style and try to make them stronger based on feedback again like johnny is saying after the after you've received like especially if you're a middle grade or ya after you've received all of the rejections not like during the querying process don't be changing everything up when 50 people have your stuff that's just a recipe for craziness you know what i mean like spinning your wheels i think that's all i've i've got on that topic is there anything else that anyone wanted to add I think like, I mean, uh, so I wanted to add that like, I know that getting personalized rejections should seem really like cute and cool because the agent took the time out of their day to do it. I, a lot of the times took it really hard because I found that they were just kind of like showing really specific things that I could have done better and I just didn't do better. And it's like, well, look at this. Like if you just thought about that earlier, then maybe I would be saying yes. And so like with that, and I said this in the last podcast I was at, like, as, as negative as you might get in your head, it's important to remember that all you need is one yes at the end of the day. Like, Fair enough. Just Fair one enough. yes is gonna get you there. And so like take those no's and if you got a drink to it, like Vanessa, like I am completely here for that too. Like go and, <laughs> go and drink a, a glass of wine for every no that you get. Like I am completely in support of that. Um, and then remember that that one yes is out there and you're gonna find them. Awesome. And I, I should caveat my, my advice with that as well is that, you're allowed to feel whatever feelings you feel based on what you read. You're absolutely allowed to be upset. You're allowed to be disappointed. You're allowed to dwell. If you're into dwelling, that's all good. You be you. 
there was one that I just felt was so personal to me. And I think it was because it was like the slightest bit negative when I was just so used to like, oh my God, it's so cute. It's so great. But here's just this thing. And I was just holding it in for the entire night. Just so salty oh. about it. Like talking such trash about that person. I feel really <laughs> it now. But like, yeah, you feel whatever you need to feel. Like put, stick to that small group that you have. Don't put it online. Whatever you no, feel. Do not put it online. Stick, do not. Your friends, stick to your friends, let it out there. And then just like, let it be in the universe and forget about it. Move on to the next one. Yes. Do not. Uh, that's great advice, actually, for everyone. If you're, do not put your rejections on Twitter. People will figure it out. Sometimes agents use form letters and people can figure out who, you're, who was the person who rejected you. Don't smack talk people on Twitter. People figure it out. It, it's not that difficult. To, it's a small industry. All right. Um, the last thing we have is a little bit of information on how you can learn more about Las Musas. So if you'd like to learn more about Las Musas or our books, please visit our website at lasmusasbooks.com. L-A-S-M-U-S-A-S-B-O-O-K-S.com. Or find us on social media at Las Musas Books. And be sure to check out our bookshop page where each where each purchase of one of our books goes towards supporting independent bookstores. If you enjoy this episode, please like, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also sign up for Las Musas newsletter to have podcast updates as well as other Musa news, such as release dates, teasers, spotlights, and more delivered straight to your inbox. Thank you for listening.